Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Book Second, Chapter Six. The Broken Jug. After having run for some time at the top of his speed, without knowing whither, knocking his head against many a street corner, leaping many a gutter, traversing many an alley, many a court, many a square, seeking flight and passage through all the meanderings of the ancient passages of the all, exploring in his panic terror what the fine Latin of the maps calls tota via, ceminum et viaria, our poet suddenly halted for lack of breath in the first place, and in the second because he had been collared, after a fashion, by a dilemma which had just occurred to his mind. It strikes me, Master Pierre Gringoire, he said to himself, placing his finger to his brow, that you are running like a madman. The little scamps are no less afraid of you than you are of them. It strikes me, I say, that you heard the clatter of their wooden shoes fleeing southward, while you were fleeing northward. Now one of two things. Either they have taken flight, and the pallet, which they must have forgotten in their terror, is precisely that hospitable bed in search of which you have been running ever since morning, and which Madame the Virgin miraculously sends you in order to recompense you for having made a morality in her honour, accompanied by triumphs and mummeries. Or the children have not taken flight, and in that case they have put the brand to the pallet, and that is precisely the good fire which you need to cheer, dry, and warm you. In either case, good fire or good bed, that straw pallet is a gift from heaven. The Blessed Virgin Marie, who stands at the corner of the Rue Mauconseil, could only have made Eustache Mauban die for that express purpose. And it is folly on your part to flee thus zigzag, like a Picard before a Frenchman, leaving behind you what you seek before you, and you are a fool." Then he retraced his steps, and feeling his way and searching, with his nose to the wind and his ears on the alert, he tried to find the blessed pallet again, but in vain. There was nothing to be found but intersections of houses, closed courts, and crossings of streets, in the midst of which he hesitated and doubted incessantly, being more perplexed and entangled in this medley of streets than he would have been even in the labyrinth of the Hôtel du Tournelle. At length he lost patience, and exclaimed solemnly, "'Cursed be crossroads! Tis the devil who has made them in the shape of his pitchfork!' This exclamation afforded him a little solace, 
and a sort of reddish reflection which he caught sight of at that moment, at the extremity of a long and narrow lane, completed the elevation of his moral tone. "'God be praised,' said he, "'there it is yonder. There is my pallet burning.' and comparing himself to the pilot who suffers shipwreck by night. "'Salve!' he added piously. "'Salve, Maristella!' Did he address this fragment of litany to the Holy Virgin, or to the pallet? We are utterly unable to say. He had taken but a few steps in the long street which sloped downwards, was unpaved, and more and more muddy and steep, when he noticed a very singular thing. It was not deserted. Here and there along its extent crawled certain vague and formless masses, all directing their course towards the light which flickered at the end of the street, like those heavy insects which drag along by night, from blade to blade of grass, towards the shepherd's fire. Nothing renders one so adventurous as not being able to feel the place where one's pocket is situated. Gringoire continued to advance and had soon joined that one of the forms which dragged along most indolently behind the others. On drawing near, he perceived that it was nothing else than a wretched, legless cripple in a bowl, who was hopping along on his two hands like a wounded field-spider which has but two legs left. At the moment when he passed close to this species of spider with a human countenance, it raised towards him a lamentable voice. La buona mancia, signor! La buona mancia! Deuce take you, said Gringoire, and me with you, if I know what you mean. And he passed on. He overtook another of these itinerant masses and examined it. It was an impotent man, both halt and crippled, and halt and crippled to such a degree that the complicated system of crutches and wooden legs which sustained him gave him the air of a mason scaffolding on the march. Gringoire, who liked noble and classical comparisons, compared him in thought to the living tripod of Vulcan. This living tripod saluted him as he passed, but stopping his hat on a level with Gringoire's chin, like a shaving-dish, while he shouted in the latter's ears, "'Señor Caballero, para comprar un potasso de pan!' It appears, said Gringoire, that this one can also talk, but tis a rude language, and he is more fortunate than I if he understands it. Then, smiting his brow, in a sudden transition of ideas, By the way, what the deuce did they mean this morning with their Esmeralda? He was minded to augment his pace, but for the third time something barred his way. This something or rather some one, was a blind man, a little blind fellow with a bearded Jewish face, who, rowing away in the space about him with a stick, and towed by a large dog, droned through his nose with a Hungarian accent, Fesitote caritatem. "'Well, now,' said Gringoire, "'here's one at last who speaks a Christian tongue. I must have a very charitable aspect.' since they ask alms of me in the present lean condition of my purse. My friend, and he turned towards the blind man, I sold my last shirt last week, that is to say, since you understand only the language of Cicero, 
vendidi hebdomade nuper transita miam altimam chemisan. That said, he turned his back upon the blind man, and pursued his way. But the blind man began to increase his stride at the same time, and behold, the cripple and the legless man, in his bowl, came up on their side in great haste, and with great clamour of bowl and crutches, upon the pavement. Then all three, jostling each other at poor Gringoire's heels, began to sing their song to him. "'Caritatum!' chanted the blind man. "'La buona mancia!' chanted the cripple in the bowl, and the lame man took up the musical phrase by repeating, "'Un pedazo de pan!' Gringoire stopped up his ears. "'Oh, Tower of Babel!' he exclaimed. He set out to run. The blind man ran. The lame man ran. The cripple in the bowl ran. And then, in proportion as he plunged deeper into the street, Cripples in bowls, blind men, and lame men swarmed about him, and men with one arm, and with one eye, and the leprous with their sores, some emerging from little streets adjacent, some from the air-holes of cellars, howling, bellowing, yelping, all limping and halting, all flinging themselves towards the light, and humped up in the mire, like snails after a shower. Gringoire, still followed by his three persecutors, and not knowing very well what was to become of him, marched along in terror among them, turning out for the lame, stepping over the cripples in bowls, with his feet embedded in that ant-hill of lame men, like the English captain who got caught in the quicksand of a swarm of crabs. The idea occurred to him of making every effort to retrace his steps, but it was too late. This whole legion had closed in behind him and his three beggars held him fast. So he proceeded, impelled both by this irresistible flood, by fear, and by a vertigo which converted all this into a sort of horrible dream. At last he reached the end of the street. It opened upon an immense place, where a thousand scattered lights flickered in the confused mists of night. Gringoire flew thither, hoping to escape, by the swiftness of his legs, from the three infirm spectres who had clutched him. "'Onde vas, hombre?' "'Where are you going, my man?' cried the cripple, flinging away his crutches, and running after him with the best legs that ever traced a geometrical step upon the pavements of Paris. In the meantime the legless man, erect upon his feet, crowned Gringoire with his heavy iron bowl and the blind man glared in his face with flaming eyes. "'Where am I?' said the terrified poet. "'In the Court of Miracles,' replied a fourth spectre, who had accosted them. "'Upon my soul,' resumed Gringoire, "'I certainly do behold the blind who see, and the lame who walk, but where is the Saviour?' They replied by a burst of sinister laughter. The poor poet cast his eyes about him. It was, in truth, that redoubtable cour de miracles, whither an honest man had never penetrated at such an hour. The magic circle, where the officers of the Châtelet and the sergeants of the provost-ship who ventured thither disappeared in morsels. A city of thieves, a hideous wart on the face of Paris, a sewer, from which escaped every morning, and whither returned every night to crouch, 
that stream of vices, of mendicancy and vagabondage, which always overflows in the streets of capitals. A monstrous hive, to which returned at nightfall, with their booty, all the drones of the social order. A lying hospital, where the bohemian, the disfrocked monk, the ruined scholar, the ne'er-do-wells of all nations, Spaniards, Italians, Germans, of all religions, Jews, Christians, Mohammedans, idolaters, covered with painted sores, beggars by day, were transformed by night into brigands. An immense dressing-room, in a word, where, at that epoch, the actors of that eternal comedy, which theft, prostitution, and murder play upon the pavements of Paris, dressed and undressed. It was a vast place, irregular and badly paved, like all the squares of Paris at that date. Fires, around which swarmed strange groups, blazed here and there. Everyone was going, coming, and shouting. Shrill laughter was to be heard, the wailing of children, the voices of women. The hands and heads of this throng, black against the luminous background, outlined against it a thousand eccentric gestures. At times, upon the ground, where trembled the light of the fires, mingled with large, indefinite shadows, one could behold a dog passing, which resembled a man, a man who resembled a dog. The limits of races and species seemed effaced in this city as in a pandemonium. Men, women, beasts, age, sex, health, maladies, all seemed to be in common among these people. All went together. They mingled, confounded, superposed. Each one there participated in all. The poor and flickering flames of the fire permitted Gringoire to distinguish, amid his trouble, all around the immense place, a hideous frame of ancient houses, whose worm-eaten, shriveled, stunted façades, each pierced with one or two lighted attic windows, seemed to him, in the darkness, like enormous heads of old women, ranged in a circle, monstrous and crabbed, winking as they looked on the witches' Sabbath. It was like a new world, unknown, unheard of, misshapen, creeping, swarming, fantastic. Gringoire, more and more terrified, clutched by the three beggars as by three pairs of tongs, dazed by a throng of other faces which frothed and yelped around him, unhappy Gringoire endeavoured to summon his presence of mind in order to recall whether it was a Saturday. But his efforts were in vain. The thread of his memory and of his thought was broken, and, doubting everything, wavering between what he saw and what he felt, he put to himself this unanswerable question. If I exist, does this exist? If this exists, do I exist? At that moment a distinct cry arose in the buzzing throng which surrounded him. "'Let's take him to the king! Let's take him to the king!' "'Holy virgin!' murmured Gringoire. "'The king here must be a ram!' "'To the king! To the king!' repeated all the voices. They dragged him off. Each vied with the other in laying his claws upon him. But the three beggars did not loose their hold, and tore him from the rest, howling, "'He belongs to us!' The poet's already sickly doublet yielded its last sigh in this struggle. While traversing the horrible place, his vertigo vanished. After taking a few steps, the sentiment of reality returned to him. He began to become accustomed to the atmosphere of the place. 
at the first moment there had arisen from his poet's head, or simply and prosaically from his empty stomach, a mist, a vapour, so to speak, which, spreading between objects and himself, permitted him to catch a glimpse of them only in the incoherent fog of nightmare, in those shadows of dreams which distort every outline, agglomerating objects into unwieldy groups, dilating things into chimeras, and men into phantoms. Little by little this hallucination was succeeded by a less bewildered and exaggerating view. Reality made its way to the light around him, struck his eyes, struck his feet, and demolished, bit by bit, all that frightful poetry with which he had at first believed himself to be surrounded. He was forced to perceive that he was not walking in the sticks, but in mud, that he was elbowed not by demons, but by thieves, that it was not his soul which was in question, but his life, since he lacked that precious conciliator which places itself so effectually between the bandit and the honest man, a purse. In short, on examining the orgy more closely, and with more coolness, he fell from the witch's sabbath to the dram-shop. The Cour de Miracles was, in fact, merely a dram-shop, but a brigand's dram-shop, reddened quite as much with blood as with wine. The spectacle which presented itself to his eyes, when his ragged escort finally deposited him at the end of his trip, was not fitted to bear him back to poetry, even to the poetry of hell. It was more than ever the prosaic and brutal reality of the tavern. Were we not in the fifteenth century, we would say that Gringoire had descended from Michelangelo to Callot. Around a great fire, which burned on a large, circular flagstone, the flames of which had heated red-hot the legs of a tripod, which was empty for the moment, some worm-eaten tables were placed here and there, haphazard, no lackey of a geometrical turn having deigned to adjust their parallelism, or to see to it that they did not make too unusual angles. Upon these tables gleamed several dripping pots of wine and beer, and around these pots were grouped many bacchic visages, purple with the fire and the wine. There was a man with a huge belly and a jovial face, noisily kissing a woman of the town, thick-set and brawny. There was a sort of sham soldier, a nequa, as the slang expression runs, who was whistling as he undid the bandages from his fictitious wound, and removing the numbness from his sound and vigorous knee, which had been swathed since morning in a thousand ligatures. On the other hand, there was a wretched fellow, preparing with celandine and beef's blood his leg of God for the next day. Two tables further on, a palmer, with his pilgrim's costume complete, was practicing the lament of the Holy Queen, not forgetting the drone and the nasal drawl. Further on, a young scamp was taking a lesson in epilepsy from an old pretender, who was instructing him in the art of foaming at the mouth, by chewing a morsel of soap. Beside him, a man with the dropsy was getting rid of his swelling, and making four or five female thieves, who were disputing at the same table, over a child who had been stolen that evening, hold their noses. All circumstances which, two centuries later, seemed so ridiculous to the court, as Sauval says, that they served as a pastime to the king, and as an introduction to the royal ballet of night, 
divided into four parts and danced on the theatre of the Petit Bourbon. Never, as an eye-witness of 1653, have the sudden metamorphoses of the Court of Miracles been more happily presented. Bensarad prepared us for it by some very gallant verses. Loud laughter everywhere, and obscene songs. Each one held his own course, carping and swearing, without listening to his neighbor. Pots clinked, and quarrels sprang up at the shock of the pots, and the broken pots made rents in the rags. A big dog, seated on his tail, gazed at the fire. Some children were mingled in this orgy. The stolen child wept and cried, another, a big boy, four years of age, seated with legs dangling upon a bench that was too high for him, before a table that reached to his chin, was uttering not a word. A third, gravely spreading out upon the table with his finger the melted tallow which dripped from a candle. Last of all, a little fellow, crouching in the mud, almost lost in a cauldron which he was scraping with a tile, and from which he was evoking a sound that would have made Stradivarius swoon. Near the fire was a hogshead, and on the hogshead a beggar. This was the king on his throne. The three who had Gringois in their clutches led him in front of this hogshead, and the entire bacchanal rout fell silent for a moment, with the exception of the cauldron inhabited by the child. Gringois dared neither breathe nor raise his eyes. "'Hombre, quita tu sombrero!' said one of the three knaves, in whose grasp he was, and before he had comprehended the meaning the other had snatched his hat, a wretched headgear, it is true, but still good on a sunny day, or when there was but little rain. Gringoire sighed. Meanwhile the king addressed him, from the summit of his cask. "'Who is this rogue?' Gringoire shuddered. That voice, although accentuated by menace, recalled to him another voice, which, that very morning, had dealt the death-blow to his mystery, by drawling nasally in the midst of the audience, "'Charity, please!' He raised his head. It was indeed Clopin Trifot. Clopin Trifot, arrayed in his royal insignia, wore neither one rag more nor one rag less. The sore upon his arm had already disappeared. He held in his hand one of those whips made of thongs of white leather, which police sergeants then used to repress the crowd, and which were called boyers. On his head he wore a sort of headgear, bound round and closed at the top. But it was difficult to make out whether it was a child's cap or a king's crown. The two things bore so strong a resemblance to each other. Meanwhile Gringoire, without knowing why, had regained some hope on recognizing in the king of the Cour de Miracles his accursed mendicant of the Grand Hall. "'Master,' stammered he, "'Monseigneur, Sir, how ought I to address you?' he said at length, having reached the culminating point of his crescendo, and knowing neither how to mount higher nor to descend again. "'Monseigneur, his majesty, or comrade, call me what you please. But make haste! What have you to say in your own defence? In your own defence? thought Gringoire. That displeases me. He resumed, stuttering, I am he who, this morning, 
"'By the devil's claws!' interrupted Clopin. "'Your name, knave, and nothing more. Listen, you are in the presence of three powerful sovereigns. Myself, Clopin Trefaux, King of Tunay, successor to the Grand Coisset, supreme suzerain of the realm of Argo. Matthias Hunyadi Spicali, Duke of Egypt and of Bohemia, the old yellow fellow whom you see yonder, with a dish-clout round his head. Guillaume Ressot, Emperor of Galilee, that fat fellow who is not listening to us but caressing a wench. We are your judges. You have entered the kingdom of Argo without being an Argotier. You have violated the privileges of our city. You must be punished unless you're a capon, a franc, mito, or rifode, that is to say, in the slang of honest folks, a thief, a beggar, or a vagabond. Are you anything of that sort? Justify yourself. Announce your titles." "'Alas,' said Gringoire, "'I have not that honour. I am the author—' "'That is sufficient,' resumed Trefaux, without permitting him to finish. "'You are going to be hanged. Tis a very simple matter, gentlemen and honest bourgeois. As you treat our people in your abode, so we treat you in ours. The law which you apply to vagabonds, vagabonds apply to you. Tis your fault if it is harsh. One really must behold the grimace of an honest man above the hempen collar now and then. That renders the thing honourable. Come, friend, divide your rags gaily among these damsels. I am going to have you hanged to amuse the vagabonds, and you are to give them your purse to drink your health. If you have any mummery to go through with, there's a very good God the Father in that mortar yonder in stone, which we stole from the St. Pierre aux Boeufs. You have four minutes in which to fling your soul at his head." The harangue was formidable. "'Well said, upon my soul! Clopin Trefaux preaches like the Holy Father the Pope!' exclaimed the Emperor of Galilee, smashing his pot in order to prop up his table. "'Monseigneurs, emperors, and kings,' said Gringoire coolly, for I know not how, firmness had returned to him, and he spoke with resolution. "'Don't think of such a thing. My name is Pierre Gringoire. I am the poet whose morality was presented this morning in the grand hall of the courts.' "'Ah, so it was you, master,' said Clopin. "'I was there, cette deu. Well, comrade, is that any reason, because you bored us to death this morning, that you should not be hung this evening?" "'I shall find difficulty in getting out of it,' said Gringoire to himself. Nevertheless, he made one more effort. "'I don't see why poets are not classed with vagabonds,' said he. "'Vagabond. Aesopus certainly was. Homerus was a beggar. Mercurius was a thief. Clopin interrupted him. "'I believe that you are trying to blarney us with your jargon. Zounds! Let yourself be hung, and don't kick up such a row over it.' "'Pardon me, Monseigneur the King of Tunay,' replied Gringoire, disputing the ground foot by foot. "'It is worth trouble. One moment, listen to me. You are not going to condemn me without having heard me.' 
His unlucky voice was, in fact, drowned in the uproar which rose around him. The little boy scraped away at his cauldron with more spirit than ever, and, to crown all, an old woman had just placed on the tripod a frying-pan of grease, which hissed away on the fire with a noise similar to the cry of a troop of children in pursuit of a masker. In the meantime Clopin Trefaux appeared to hold a momentary conference with the Duke of Egypt and the Emperor of Galilee, who was completely drunk. Then he shouted shrilly, "'Silence!' and as the cauldron and the frying-pan did not heed him, and continued their duet, he jumped down from his hogshead and gave a kick to the boiler, which rolled ten paces away bearing the child with it, a kick to the frying-pan, which upset in the fire with all its grease, and gravely remounted his throne, without troubling himself about the stifled tears of the child or the grumbling of the old woman, whose supper was wasting away in a fine white flame. Trefaux made a sign, and the duke, the emperor, and the past masters of pickpockets and the isolated robbers came and ranged themselves around him in a horseshoe, of which Gringoire, still roughly held by the body, formed the center. It was a semicircle of rags, tatters, tinsel, pitchforks, axes, legs staggering with intoxication, huge, bare arms, faces sordid, dull, and stupid. In the midst of this round table of beggary, Clopin Trefaux, as the doge of this senate, as the king of this peerage, as the pope of this conclave, dominated, first by virtue of the height of his hogshead, and next by virtue of an indescribable haughty, fierce, and formidable air, which caused his eyes to flash and corrected in his savage profile the bestial type of the race of vagabonds. One would have pronounced him a boar amid a herd of swine. Listen," said he to Gringoire, fondling his misshapen chin with his horny hand, I don't see why you should not be hung. It is true that it appears to be repugnant to you, and it is very natural, for you bourgeois are not accustomed to it. You form for yourselves a great idea of the thing. After all, we don't wish you any harm. Here is a means of extricating yourself from your predicament for the moment. Will you become one of us?" The reader can judge of the effect which this proposition produced upon Gringoire, who beheld life slipping away from him, and who was beginning to lose his hold upon it. He clutched it again with energy. "'Certainly I will, and right heartily,' said he. "'Do you consent,' resumed Clopin, "'to enroll yourself among the people of the knife?' "'Of the knife, precisely.' responded Gringoire. "'You recognize yourself as a member of the free bourgeoisie?' added the King of Tunay. "'Of the free bourgeoisie. Subject of the kingdom of Argo? Of the kingdom of Argo. A vagabond? A vagabond. In your soul? In my soul.' "'I must call your attention to the fact,' continued the King that you would be hung all the same. The devil, said the poet. Only, continued Clopin imperturbably, you will be hung later on, with more ceremony, at the expense of the good city of Paris, on a handsome stone gibbet and by honest men. That is a consolation. Just so, responded Gringoire. 
There are other advantages. In your quality of a high-toned sharper, you will not have to pay the taxes on mud, or the poor, or lanterns to which the bourgeois of Paris are subject." "'So be it,' said the poet. "'I agree. I am a vagabond, a thief, a sharper, a man of the knife, anything you please. And I am all that already, Monsieur King of Tunay, for I am a philosopher. Et omnia in philosophia, omnis in philosopho continentur. All things are contained in philosophy, all men in the philosopher, as you know." The King of Tunay scowled. "'What do you take me for, my friend? What Hungarian Jew-patter are you jabbering at us? I don't know Hebrew. One isn't a Jew because one is a bandit. I don't even steal any longer. I'm above all that. I kill. Cutthroat, yes. Cutpurse, no.' Gringoire tried to slip in some excuse between these curt words, which wrath rendered more and more jerky. "'I ask your pardon, Monseigneur. It is not Hebrew, tis Latin.' "'I tell you,' resumed Clopin angrily, "'that I am not a Jew, and that I'll have you hung belly of the synagogue like that little shopkeeper of Judea, who is by your side, and whom I entertain strong hopes of sealing nailed to a counter one of these days, like the counterfeit coin that he is.' So saying, he pointed his finger at the little bearded Hungarian Jew, who had accosted Gringoire with his facitote caritatum, and who, understanding no other language, beheld with surprise the king of Tunay's ill-humour overflow upon him. At length Monsieur Clopin calmed down. "'So, you will be a vagabond, you knave,' he said to our poet. "'Of course,' replied the poet. "'Willing is not all,' said the surly Clopin. Goodwill doesn't put one onion the more into the soup, and is good for nothing except to go to paradise with. Now, paradise and the thieves' band are two different things. In order to be received among the thieves, you must prove that you are good for something, and for that purpose you must search the mannequin. I'll search anything you like, said Gringoire. Clopin made a sign. Several thieves detached themselves from the circle and returned a moment later. They brought two thick posts, terminated at their lower extremities in spreading timber supports, which made them stand readily upon the ground. To the upper extremity of the two posts they fitted a cross-beam, and the whole constituted a very pretty portable gibbet, which Gringoire had the satisfaction of beholding rise before him in a twinkling. Nothing was lacking, not even the rope, which swung gracefully over the cross-beam. "'What are they going to do?' Gringoire asked himself, with some uneasiness. A sound of bells, which he heard at that moment, put an end to his anxiety. It was a stuffed mannequin, which the vagabonds were suspending by the neck from the rope, a sort of scarecrow dressed in red, and so hung with mule-bells and larger bells that one might have tricked out thirty Castilian mules with them. These thousand tiny bells quivered for some time with the vibration of the rope, then gradually died away, 
and finally became silent when the mannequin had been brought into a state of immobility by that law of the pendulum which has dethroned the water-clock and the hour-glass. Then Clopin, pointing out to Gringoire a rickety old stool placed beneath the mannequin, "'Climb up there!' "'Death of the devil!' objected Gringoire. "'I shall break my neck. Your stool limps like one of Marshall's distichs. It has one hexameter leg and one pentameter leg. Climb, repeated Clopin. Gringoire mounted the stool and succeeded, not without some oscillations of head and arms, in regaining his center of gravity. Now, went on the king of Tunay, twist your right foot round your left leg and rise on the tip of your left foot. Monseigneur, said Gringoire, so you absolutely insist on my breaking some of my limbs?" Clopin tossed his head. "'Hark ye, my friend, you talk too much. Here's the gist of the matter in two words. You are to rise on tiptoe as I tell you. In that way you will be able to reach the pocket of the mannequin. You will rummage it, you will pull out the purse that is there. And if you do all this without our hearing the sound of a bell, all is well you shall be a vagabond. All we shall then have to do will be to thrash you soundly for the space of a week." "'Ventre deux! I will be careful,' said Gringoire. "'And suppose I do make the bell sound? Then you will be hanged. Do you understand?' "'I don't understand at all,' replied Gringoire. "'Listen once more. You are to search the mannequin and take away its purse. If a single bell stirs during the operation, you will be hung. Do you understand that?" "'Good,' said Gringoire. "'I understand that. And then?' "'If you succeed in removing the purse without our hearing the bells, you are a vagabond, and you will be thrashed for eight consecutive days. You understand now, no doubt?' "'No, Monsieur, I no longer understand. Where is the advantage to me? hanged in one case, cudgelled in the other. And a vagabond, resumed Clopin. And a vagabond. Is that nothing? It is for your interest that we should beat you, in order to harden you to blows." Many thanks, replied the poet. Come, make haste, said the king, stamping upon his cask, which resounded like a huge drum. Search the mannequin, and let there be an end to this. I warn you for the last time that if I hear a single bell you will take the place of the mannequin." The band of thieves applauded Clopin's words and arranged themselves in a circle round the gibbet, with a laugh so pitiless that Gringoire perceived that he amused them too much not to have everything to fear from them. No hope was left for him, accordingly unless it were the slight chance of succeeding in the formidable operation which was imposed upon him. He decided to risk it, but it was not without first having addressed a fervent prayer to the mannequin he was about to plunder, and who would have been easier to move to pity than the vagabonds. These myriad bells, with their little copper tongues, seemed to him like the mouths of so many asps, open and ready to sting and to hiss. Oh, he said in a very low voice, is it possible that my life depends on the slightest vibration of the least of these bells? Oh, 
he added with clasped hands, bells do not ring, handbells do not clang, mule bells do not quiver. He made one more attempt upon Trefaux. And if there should come a gust of wind? You will be hanged, replied the other, without hesitation. Perceiving that no respite, nor reprieve, nor subterfuge was possible, he bravely decided upon his course of action. He wound his right foot round his left leg, raised himself on his left foot, and stretched out his arm. But at the moment when his hand touched the mannequin, his body, which was now supported upon one leg only, wavered on the stool, which had but three. He made an involuntary effort to support himself by the mannequin, lost his balance, and fell heavily to the ground, deafened by the fatal vibration of the thousand bells of the mannequin, which, yielding to the impulse imparted by his hand, described first a rotary motion, and then swayed majestically between the two posts. "'Malediction!' he cried as he fell, and remained as though dead with his face to the earth. Meanwhile he heard the dreadful peal above his head, the diabolical laughter of the vagabonds, and the voice of Trophie, saying, "'Pick me up that knave, and hang him without ceremony!' He rose. They had already detached the mannequin to make room for him. The thieves made him mount the stool. Clopin came to him, passed the rope about his neck, and tapping him on the shoulder, "'Adieu, my friend. You can't escape now even if you digested with the Pope's guts." The word mercy died away upon Gringoire's lips. He cast his eyes about him, but there was no hope. All were laughing. "'Bellevine de la Toit, said the King of Tunay to an enormous vagabond who stepped out from the ranks. "'Climb upon the cross-beam!' Bellevine de la Toit nimbly mounted the traverse-beam and in another minute Gringoire, on raising his eyes, beheld him, with terror, seated upon the beam above his head. "'Now,' resumed Clopin Trifot, "'as soon as I clap my hands, you, André the Red, will fling the stool to the ground with a blow of your knee. You, François Chanteprune, will cling to the feet of the rascal, and you, Bellevine, will fling yourself on his shoulders.' and all three at once, do you hear?" Gringoire shuddered. "'Are you ready?' said Clopin Trifot to the three thieves, who held themselves in readiness to fall upon Gringoire. A moment of horrible suspense ensued for the poor victim, during which Clopin tranquilly thrust into the fire with the tip of his foot some bits of vine-shoots which the flame had not caught. "'Are you ready?' he repeated and opened his hands to clap. One second more, and all would have been over. But he paused, as though struck by a sudden thought. "'One moment,' said he. "'I forgot. It is our custom not to hang a man without inquiring whether there is any woman who wants him. Comrade, this is your last resource. You must wed either a female vagabond or the noose.' This law of the vagabonds, singular as it may strike the reader, remains to-day written out at length in ancient English legislation. Gringoire breathed again. This was the second time that he had returned to life within an hour. So he did not dare to trust to it too implicitly. "'Hola!' 
cried Clopin, mounted once more upon his cask. Hola, women, females! Is there among you, from the sorceress to her cat, a wench who wants this rascal? Hola, Colette la Charon, Elizabeth Trophin, Simon Jordan, Marie Pedebaud, Tonnet Lelong, Barard Fanoui, Michel Janay, Claude Rongeret, Matorine Girardot, Hola, Isabeau Latieri, come and see, a man for nothing. Who wants him? Gringoire, no doubt, was not very appetizing in his miserable condition. The female vagabonds did not seem to be much affected by the proposition. The unhappy wretch heard them answer, No, no, hang him! There'll be more fun for us all! Nevertheless, three emerged from the throng and came to smell of him. The first was a big wench with a square face. She examined the philosopher's deplorable doublet attentively. His garment was worn, and more full of holes than a stove for roasting chestnuts. The girl made a wry face. "'Old rag!' she muttered, and addressing Gringoire. "'Let's see your cloak!' "'I have lost it,' replied Gringoire. "'Your hat? They took it away from me. Your shoes? They have hardly any soles left. Your purse? Alas!' stammered Gringoire. I have not even a sou. "'Let them hang you, then, and say thank you,' retorted the vagabond wench, turning her back on him. The second, old, black, wrinkled, hideous, with an ugliness conspicuous even in the Cour de Miracles, trotted round Gringoire. He almost trembled lest she should want him. But she mumbled between her teeth, "'He's too thin,' and went off. The third was a young girl, quite fresh, and not too ugly. "'Save me,' said the poor fellow to her, in a low tone. She gazed at him for a moment with an air of pity, then dropped her eyes, made a plate in her petticoat, and remained in indecision. He followed all these movements with his eyes. It was the last gleam of hope. "'No,' said the young girl at length. No, Guillaume Langeois would beat me. She retreated into the crowd. You are unlucky, comrade, said Clopin. Then, rising to his feet upon his hogshead, No one wants him, he exclaimed, imitating the accent of an auctioneer to the great delight of all. No one wants him? Once, twice, three times! And, turning towards the gibbet with a sign of his hand, Gone! Bellevine de la Toile, André the Red, François Chanteprunet stepped up to Gringoire. At that moment a cry arose among the thieves. La Esmeralda! La Esmeralda! Gringoire shuddered, and turned towards the side whence the clamour proceeded. The crowd opened and gave passage to a pure and dazzling form. It was the gypsy. La Esmeralda! said Gringoire stupefied in the midst of his emotions by the abrupt manner in which that magic word knotted together all his reminiscences of the day. This rare creature seemed, even in the Cour de Miracles, to exercise her sway of charm and beauty. The vagabonds, male and female, ranged themselves gently along her path, and their brutal faces beamed beneath her glance. She approached the victim with her light step. 
Her pretty jolly followed her. Gringoire was more dead than alive. She examined him for a moment in silence. "'You are going to hang this man?' she said gravely to Clopin. "'Yes, sister,' replied the King of Tunay. "'Unless you will take him for your husband.' She made her pretty little pout with her under lip. "'I'll take him,' said she. Gringoire firmly believed that he had been in a dream ever since morning, and that this was the continuation of it. The change was, in fact, violent, though a gratifying one. They undid the noose and made the poet step down from the stool. His emotion was so lively that he was obliged to sit down. The Duke of Egypt brought an earthenware crock without uttering a word. The gypsy offered it to Gringoire. "'Fling it on the ground,' said she. The crock broke into four pieces. "'Brother!' then said the Duke of Egypt, laying his hands upon their foreheads. "'She is your wife. Sister, he is your husband for four years. Go!' End of chapter 6